0: Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Ritter, and you are about to see and hear civil rights activist Al Sharpton in a way you maybe haven't seen or heard him before. The 69-year-old Reverend Sharpton perhaps looking at his life in a way that he didn't look at before. Trust me, that happens to people of a certain age, and it's a healthy exercise. After decades of being in the spotlight of the fight for civil rights, Alfred Charles Sharpton Jr., while still very much the activist, is now also a kind of senior leader for a movement that has lasted more than a century and a half. When I sat down with him recently, we talked about the meaning of Black History Month, the state of Black youth in a society that focuses more on smartphones and social media than it does on collective issues and problems. My conversation with Reverend Sharpton, who has focused so much on issues and problems, was, I think, illuminating. And I hope you feel the same way. Thank you for joining us, Reverend. Uh, I want to get the first broad picture, before we get into the weeds a little bit. Can you say what the state of play is when it comes to civil rights, especially as we talk about Black History Month?
1: I think that we are in a very precarious state. Uh, And I think things have happened of late so quickly that we don't even realize the peril that we're in. We have in the last year lost affirmative action by the Supreme Court they've chipped away Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, they've taken, taken away women's right to choose, all within the last year to 18 months. And I think people don't realize the impact of that because out of losing affirmative action, you now have a proactive movement in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if you take away a lot of the meat of the Voting Rights Act, you take away affirmative action and DEI, which is the economic uh, parts, Dr. King and others in the 60s fought for, you have in effect neutralized a lot of the gains of the civil rights movement 50 years ago. And I think that we have not really looked at it through that kind of, of, of lens and say, wait a minute, my grandson, I only have one grandchild, he will grow
0: up in a world with less rights than I grew up in, and I thought I had no rights. Yeah. Is part of it, though, Reverend, that people are tired of fighting back, that they have given up hope a little bit? Because otherwise, why aren't people doing something about
1: it? I think that some are tired, uh, some are active, but, but in different ways. And I think some of the younger crowd came in a generation where they didn't have to fight. So if you got into school because of affirmative action or you got a business contract because of DEI, you don't have a sense that you lost anything because you always had it. We had to fight to get it. So we knew what it was like not to get it. They didn't. So they're living in a world where they're now figuring out, well, why are you raising hell about this revenue? I'll give you an example. I had no problem mobilizing tens of thousands around George Floyd because they understood the reality. And they saw it. And they saw it. They don't see this. These are institutional changes that they don't see as immediate. So that's why you don't see the same kind of crowds, even when we call them, because they take for granted what was now uh, becoming removed from them.
0: And yet when we celebrate, quote unquote, Black History Month, I don't think that's what we focus on. Right. I think this is what we're focusing on. That's what you're focusing on. I don't think we we focus on look how great things are. And yes, a long way to go, but look how far it's come. And we're not focusing on what the ramifications of all this are.
1: We're not focusing on what the ramifications were and how they were won, how they got there. Uh, uh, We talk about inventors, and we should. We talk about great artists, and we should. We talk about Martin Luther King and others, but we don't talk about how Martin Luther King uh, house was bombed four times and uh, that he was stabbed and that he was indicted for income tax. He went through all of that to become this Nobel laureate. I think that we've given a rosy picture of what brought us to where we got to. So if you go from Martin Luther King to Barack Obama, don't go through the struggles in between you would think that was just an election. Of course, we had a black president, and uh, he was reelected. And we have a black female vice president now. And not understanding the pain that went through for that gain, and it's going to take continued pain to maintain that. And I think that unfortunately, some won't understand it till they
0: lose it. But you still have—not to still—you have. We all have a movement that is trying to erase certain things that belong to black people. The history, the books, all that stuff. There are movements out there, you know it very well, that they want to just wipe that stuff out. And they're saying it
1: openly. I I have a chapter of National Action Network in Florida. The thing that the governor there is outright saying we're gonna ban books, I'm not, not, this is not subtle, this is not meeting in private with the school superintendents. publicly. We're gonna ban these books. We're going to ban uh, certain things around LGBTQ. And there is not as much of an uprising as I would have thought it would have been. This movement has done what we must do, and that is from the ground up, they started in these school boards. They started in these parent meetings and built all the way up to Trump for president. And a lot of us, I think, got too
0: comfortable. So what does that mean for this current generation that, you know, and, and compare it to what you were like when you were a young man. And, and I think that's really the bigger issue here, because it, history becomes history. And unless you keep up with it and have an appreciation, what you said about Martin Luther King, that, that time between King and Obama, there was a lot going on.
1: I think that what is the challenge is that uh, to this generation coming, younger generation, and again, I challenge it with my own young people in NAND is that you can lose everything that was gained if you don't understand how you got it. We had to fight to get it, and we're gonna have to fight to keep it because there are people on the other side that want to fight to take it back. And all you have to do is study history. You talk about black history, study some. We were able to get, after the Civil War, 1863, Emancipation Proclamation, 12 years of Reconstruction, And the opposition never stopped fighting. They killed Reconstruction. And from the end of Reconstruction, Plessy versus Ferguson, for 100 years, we had legal segregation. So we've gone through these cycles before. Advancement, backlash, advancement, backlash. We should be astute enough to understand. Yeah, we had a black president, there was gonna be a backlash, and it was. It came in the person of Trump. Yeah, there's gonna be a backlash to Kamala Harris. And where is it gonna be now? Why do we relax if we know the currents of history says one step forward and they're going to try to push you two back do, two steps back?
0: Do you worry, Reverend, uh, that many young black people are just not going to vote in this next election?
1: Uh, I worry that we won't tell them why they should vote. If they have the information, I think they will come out. Right now, I'm concerned that they are not getting the right messaging. I say to young blacks, I do a lot of colleges, I do radio, I do TV. They say, what has happened that I should vote for? I said, okay. One of the biggest problems of young people is student debt loan. Joe Biden forgave student debt loan, millions of dollars. The Supreme Court that was stacked now five to four conservatives, three of which nominated by Trump, reversed it, said you can't do it. Those of you that don't vote, put those three guys on the court that took back your student loan. They said, oh, I don't think we're making it personal enough for them to understand.
0: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. How much do you think that this attitude among young people um, is because of this? We live in this instead of with us.
1: We talk to ourselves. I mean, we get on uh, social media and just talk to our followers, our friends, and they talk back, and we think that is the whole world.
0: You know, it wasn't that long ago when that flood of new legislation in the 60s came into being, changed this country, changed the lives of people in this country, and yet it didn't end the problems. There are a lot of people who weren't born right. by then, and they're forgetting that. You know. Jewish people have the same issue right Holocaust is being forgotten some people don't even believe it existed some Jews and get away with saying that it didn't exist uh, the
1: Holocaust that and thing with the civil rights movement I was going through the airport people always stop and want to talk and I remember uh, a a guy stopped me and said "Uh, can I take a selfie with you I said yeah and I said how old are you he told me he said yeah I was born in 1986 I said, 1986 is when I was watching at Howard Beach. I mean, so how would this guy even know about them struggles? By the time he was 10 or 12, that was uh, a forgotten history. So he knows me from George Floyd or, or from something that happened in the last five years. And to him, it's a different landscape. It's not imaginable to him that we had to go in certain areas in New York where blacks couldn't live.
0: I was an anti-war activist back in the college days in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and I remember when I look back now, I'd say, you know, we should have done things differently. We, we made mistakes. Um, but the goal was great right. to stop the war and have peace. What do you think when you look back on your life?
1: I look back and say that we should have done all of the demonstrations we did but we should have done it in the spirit of of reconciliation and explanation so people understand what we were outraged about and see people would understand that these laws would protect everybody i don't think that we were careful enough to say we're doing this to better everybody not that because we're angry at you and sometime i think our emotions got in the way of our message
0: people change We get older and you do look at your life differently, Right. right? What would you tell a young Al Sharpton?
1: i tell a young Al Sharpton that be very, very clear on what is the goal and then deal with how is the best way to get to that goal. And sometimes you might have to use a different style and a different way of speaking to get to the goal. Or are you more caught up in the drama or are you caught up in the end goal? At the end of the day, there's a lot of people I know that's been in civil rights as long as I have that nobody remembers. We only remember the people that really made change, and sometimes they were not as vociferous as we were.
0: Well, you knew a lot of people back then, right? Uh, and they still remember you, right? Uh, and America remembers you, and they know you because you're very out there still. I mean, you're you're a TV personality, right. you're a radio personality. Uh, what would the younger Al Sharpton have said about you being on the media like this?
1: I would have said it was impossible. Uh, I never. I always wanted to be a big civil rights leader, have a national organization. I did that. I never, ever thought I'd be a, a national TV host or national radio host. Uh, and I understood once I became that how you look through that media lens and not change who you are. Cause I still do the rallies in Harlem every Saturday. I still do what I do. But I also understand now because I'm talking to a broad audience that a lot of my audience just don't understand the experiences I came through. So you've got to educate and challenge people at the same time, but you can't challenge people to things that are not in their reality. And I didn't understand that younger. Like you know what I'm talking about. Well, no, they really don't know what I'm talking about.
0: And would, would the younger Al Sharpton had said to you, well, you know, it's kind of a sellout, right?
1: Yeah. Well the younger Al Sharpton might have said that you are sellout, but then the older Al Sharpton would say, Sold out to who for what? And the young Al Sharpton couldn't have explained that. Because Selling out is not a style. Selling out is when you get off your purpose. And I've been able to do more doing what I do now uh, in terms of things like stopping first, starting other legislation than I did before. I think we use terms sell out too uh, freely because we're talking more style than substance.
0: You also changed your life with the advice of the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott Martin King.
1: Martin Luther King's wife, Coretta Scott King, whose son and I are very close, worked together, Martin Luther King III, he got us together. And uh, after a few encounters, uh, she would start talking to me in an advisory way. But she had this very regal bearing, and she had this way of talking without looking like she was reprimanding you, until you, it's almost like somebody hits you and you don't realize it until you get down the block. And she said to me, Al, let me ask you a question. I said, yes, Ms. King, because I'm honored she's talking to me. Like, we were at an event for National Action and we were in the waiting room before I brought out. She says, you said A, B, C, D. I said, yeah, and I'm half surprised she even knows stuff. I said, she said, why would you use that language? I said, well, you gotta understand, I didn't come out of the South, you know, and we, we talk like that in the streets up here. She says, but don't you understand words have power? and that you could ignite something that you don't intend and people can use it against you, just just think about that. And the way she said it it is almost like hitting me and then patting me down to soothe me. This is Martin Luther King's wife. And I'm saying, yeah, this isn't somebody at a tabloid criticizing me. She's understanding what I'm saying and saying, you're better than that.
0: She wanted you to change your rhetoric. That's right. Not be full of anger. That's right. Be positive. Did it change you?
1: It, it very much changed me because not only because it was she saying it, it's because I started seeing people would understand more and people started, that's why the movement grew more, is that we were attracting people that agreed with us but didn't want to come off like they were just antagonists.
0: You, you, you talked about the change I've seen proves changes will come in the future. That's an optimistic view that I think that a lot of young people who you deal with don't have it.
1: I tell young people in 1972, I was 18 years old, a black woman ran for president named Shirley Chisholm. I was the youth director of a campaign. She was the first black woman to go to Congress. She was out of Brooklyn like I was. 1972, we ran around uh, trying to Shirley Chisholm for president. People laughed at it, including some blacks. 2009, I'm sitting on the stage watching Barack Obama being sworn in as president. I've seen that happen in my lifetime. I've seen the voting rights bill reinforced four times until we lost it recently. I've seen black billionaires when we used to march just to get Jet Magazine and A.M.P. stores. So I've seen too much to not know you can make change. And I believe that we will continue to make change if we're committed to making that
0: change. And yet we don't have, you you may have some black billionaires, but there are are a lot of people who are still in poverty in this city.
1: There's a lot of people in the city of New York still living below the poverty line. There's a lot of people around this country who are still double-digit unemployed. So we're not where we need to be, but we're not uh, where we used to be.
0: We are trying, we being the the city of New York, trying to rebuild after the pandemic. Uh, you have a mayor who has more problems thrown in when he became mayor uh, than any other mayor in New York ever really, you think about it. And then the migrant crisis has been there too. Have you talked to Eric Adams?
1: Oh yeah, we talk often. When I started National Action Network three, 33 years ago, he was one of the ones that helped incorporate.
0: And he, he still comes here and- comes and all the time. Gives dishes out food and everything and else. I understand we, that.
1: And when we. Talk, we talk frank. I tell him where I agree, where I disagree. He tells me where he and I don't agree. But we're not disagreeable. What I challenged the mayor on, and he stepped up to it, I said, do y'all realize that we are in a state of New York now? Let's just make this New York-centric for a minute. We have a black lieutenant governor, black state attorney general, black speaker of the state assembly, black... Uh, head majority leader of the New York State Senate, black mayor New York, black public advocate, two black district attorneys, a black U.S. attorney in Eastern District, Southern District, and Northern District in Buffalo. We've never dreamed when I was a kid we'd have that much blacks in power. But what will it mean if the level of income doesn't change, if the educational quality doesn't change, if we have not changed the metrics after this era, we didn't fight to get people in position, we fought to make them get those positions to change people that were forgotten. Because I was the kid out of a broken home in Brownsville, Brooklyn, that grew up on welfare. And if you can't affect that, your titles don't mean anything.
0: You were a ticked off young guy. You were full of angry anger. You tried to be articulate when you were young and you went broad and you divided yourself, you distanced yourself from some of the people you didn't like very right. much, um, who had different politics than you. And yet you're very different now. You're very different now, you're not pissed off. You don't seem pissed off. Except the eulogies you have given in the last five or six years have been some of the most profound I've ever heard. What you did for for Floyd, that that eulogy, was uh, beyond profound, beyond profound. And I know you feel that. I think uh, I'm still
1: angry, but I'm not mad there's a difference between going mad and being angry. There's something that simmers in you. And, you know, I, I started preaching, as you know, when I was a little boy, so I'm not- Four a years
0: manuscript. old, is that right? That's correct.
1: <laughs> I, I'm not a manuscript preacher. And when I went to that platform that day to preach the eulogy of George Floyd, you gotta remember we're in the middle of a pandemic, yet the place is packed, stars are there, uh, Kevin Hart, everybody there. And I'm thinking about what am I gonna say because I don't write out a manuscript. And I expressed what I felt. People were marching about George Floyd all over the world and I thought about it. I said, all of us has had our knee on, a knee on our neck. And that's where I got the sermon from. But then what are we gonna do about it? And a few months later, I'm standing there in, with the family of George Floyd when that judge announced that they held those policemen guilty on all counts. And I thought about all the times as an angry young man I marched, and we couldn't even get the police prosecuted. Amadou Diallo, the cops, we had to fight to get them even a court date. And here we finally got this country that they would say, yes, some cops are guilty. Not all, some are guilty. And Joe Biden, who as senator had signed bills we didn't like, had the George Floyd executive order signed and had me and George Floyd's family stand on the stage. We couldn't get it as federal law. So I know, I've seen too much to know that you can't make change. So I'm trying to in my life now that I'm older to say this is how you can make change. Do you want to make change or do we just want to make
0: noise? We've seen the two people running for president. Neither one of them are as articulate as they were five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, Do you worry about that?
1: No, I, I think that uh, the age thing is, is the downside of because people want young and vibrant. The upside is if you've got experience and know what you're doing in the world where we're dealing with everything from Ukraine to the Middle East, to how we deal with the aftermath of a pandemic, we need somebody that is experienced. And, and the irony is that they're not different ages. They're three years apart. It's the same generation. I mean, it's a bogus argument. What I've said to President Biden, who I talked to, is own it. I would say, yes, I'm 81 years old. I was 80 when I passed the inflation reduction bill. I was 79 when I passed the infrastructure bill. This is what an old man could do. Now, compare me to the other old guy. Own it. I'm 69 years old. I never thought when I got stabbed uh, leading a march in Bensonhurst. In your chest. When I was 37 years old, I never thought I would see 40, less known to see 69. Use that experience. People talk about, do you feel different now that you got older? Yeah, I get up every day saying I was supposed to have been dead 30-something years ago. I don't waste a day, and I don't waste a moment.
0: Reverend Sharpton, great to see you.
1: Thank you, Brother Ritter.
0: Appreciate it. All
1: right.